Welcome to the Broken Pie Chart Podcast, episode 120. I'm your host, Eric Moore, and with me is my semi-permanent co-host, CEO of Zega Financial, Jay Pestercelli. Jay, how are you doing today? Great, Eric. Glad to be here. Episode 120. Amazing. Keep rolling, buddy. I know, I know. It's been uh it's been interesting. I mean, you know, it's one of those things you start and you keep doing it and um yeah, it this week by the way, we um a milestone of sorts. We actually acquired our first uh Icelandic or person from Iceland uh on Spotify who listens to the the podcast. So, thanks thank you to the Iceland people for your support for the person I guess it, it could be somebody who just changes their uh, their IP address too. It's like in Texas or something. But you should be worldwide, Derek. That's my opinion. Well, we are, you know it's a, we never really talk about the numbers, but it, it, it's fascinating. Uh, I it, you know podcasting is a little bit fragmented in the reporting, but Spotify is actually some of the better reporting, and you could see the age of your listeners, assuming people gave the right age and uh, where they're where they're located. So yeah, no, it's interesting. Uh, Jay, before we begin to the uh, the main topic of the week, which will be, of course, uh, what was really some shocking analysis that you did, but I do have a life hack from my ten year old son, and it is uh, has to do with French fries and his his tip. Really? All right. Yeah, his tip was that if you uh, if you want to get fresh fries when you go to McDonald's, uh, tell them that you need some without salt because they obviously put salt on their all their fries, they'll have to make them fresh, and then you put your own salt on them. Um, that's the type of life advice you get from a 10-year-old, Jay. That, listen, I think, I think that's great advice. I'm always looking to, to maximize my experience at a McDonald's, which I probably <laughs> should have less and less of those, but it is a shared experience I have with my teenagers, so I'm with you. Although I'm going to tell you, like, I feel like uh, the salt is the best part of those fries, so now you got to... You know, I guess I got to carry a salt shaker in my car. Yeah, well, of course they do have packets of salt. I, I you know, because there are people who don't believe they put enough salt on their food, right? And you would. So as I go, you're driving your Jeep, and then your son wants the fries. You say, "Hold on, let me pull over, get the salt packet, and put it on, and then you hand it to him." I bet that works once for you, and then that's it for the life hack. I didn't say it was the best advice you've ever heard. I just said <laughs> it's ten year old life life hack. I'll give you one piece of advice. Ask for a side of mac sauce. My son likes to dip his fries in the mac sauce. Oh, okay. Big mac sauce on the side. That's probably opening a whole nother whole nother podcast. But I'll let you go, Derek. Um, let's go. Yeah. So I wanted to start off before you got into some of the the data with a quote from Peter Lynch, and uh, of course Peter Lynch. For those of you who don't know. And there might be some younger listeners, and judging from the Spotify stats that I do get that I just mentioned, we do have some younger listeners. Peter Lynch, of course, was the manager of the Fidelity's Magellan Fund. And his claim to fame was, I think, from the early 80s until he stopped running it, which is interesting in itself. He sort of you know, did the whole Costanza thing from Seinfeld and just walked off uh, when he was in his prime. But his quote is this, and it's really, I think, uh, appropriate for what we're going to be talking about. And Peter Lynch said, uh, far more money has been lost by investors preparing for corrections or trying to anticipate corrections than has been lost in corrections themselves. I thought this was a great quote, Jay. Uh, yeah, I mean, it go. I, I love that quote, Derek. And uh, I have not heard that one specifically, but it's it goes to the risks of market timing, right? And uh, I mean, that's what people try to do, right? You try to get out before it drops and try to figure out the right time to get back in once the drop is over. But it's difficult, very difficult to do. And we've seen a lot of investors try to do it. And the, the biggest challenge of it, and I couldn't agree more with Peter Lynch, is that you know you got to be right all the time, right? You you miss out on one of those, whether it's a, you know, a, a, you, know you don't get out and then you get out too late or, or you just miss the timing coming back in. That to me is the one I fear the, the the worst for people that are trying to figure out a way to wait for the correction or avoid the dip. You know, we invest for long periods of time. We don't invest for one month, two months at a time usually, right? I mean, investment is long, 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 the long road, the long goal. And and it's, you know, so what if you miss it? You, you experience a 5 to 10% sell-off. Markets historically have always come back to all new highs. So if you're not 
you know, trying to come up with some, you know, specific target in a short period of time, it's, it feels like it is more of a detriment than a benefit trying to time that. And I, I think that's a great quote. Do you remember Peter Lynch? I mean, it's fascinating to me. He, he did decide to, to walk away from managing that fund. Um, well, a lot of people thought it was, it's kind of like Barry Sanders for football fans. You know, he sort of walked away, uh, what many thought was, was their prime. You think it was because Peter Lynch wasn't getting paid enough? That's why Barry Sanders left, right? Because he couldn't renegotiate his contract, and then it just kind of fizzled, right? You know, I don't know. Although Peter Lynch, remember that show on PBS? Like, you think back now, is the Louis Rukeyser, and they'd all be, Louis Rukeyser would start in one camera shot, and then he'd get up and walk over to a couch, and they'd all be sitting there, and Peter Lynch was on that show. And I remember that it was on PBS. I, I mean, I remember the show. I don't remember seeing Peter Lynch on it, but yeah, I gotcha. Yeah, maybe I was watching that stuff much earlier in age than you. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> so, like, I was Which watching br- Sesame Street. You're watching Peter Lynch. I would not. Be I don't know, Derek. I be yeah, surprised. you know, three year old Derek watching financial advice. I love it. Well, you know, you got to start somewhere. Jay, this takes us to this week's topic, though, and um, I'm going to let you introduce this topic. You did some research uh, recently, and. You know, I'll, I'll probably comment after you describe it and describe what you looked at. Uh, but I got to admit, even when you you sent me this and you told me this, I did sort of a double take and I said, "You got to show me this." So, Jay, walk us through what it is uh, we're revealing here. Yeah. So the 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 concept is that you know, if your market timing um, that you can really um, uh, cause yourself to miss out on gains over time. And uh, and so what we thought was, well, what if you let's just take a look at the historical data. And what if you only missed like the two days a year, the best two days out of the year? How badly would that uh, impact your overall uh, returns? And believe it or not, if you were just to take a look at, you know, missing the best two days a year, you would end up underperforming the S&P 500 by about 6% per year, right? And that compounds out, uh, you know, it depends how many years you want to uh, uh, take a look at that. But, you know, it can end up compounding out. And I know you, maybe I'll leave the, if you want to call the actual numbers out or not, it's uh, up, to, uh, up to you, Derek. But that ends up, you know, putting us in a position to consider, you know, is it really worth you know, potentially missing the best two days out of the year when the average annual drag or underperformance against the market is going to be 6% by just missing the best two days of the year. So how did you, how did you do the analysis? So you did this, what, on daily data? And it's kind of like, hey, I could be in the market. Yeah, explain, explain the, me- the methodology too, Jay. Yeah, so we, we took a look at the, you know, the, the, the daily rate of change every day in the S&P 500. And we rank those days from best to worst. And then we took out the number one and number two day and re-ran the performance over the last 10 years and over the last 20 years. And uh, so we, we did, you know, each individual year and then kind of compounded those changes, uh, you know, if you missed out on, say, 10 years of, of the best two days. And as it, as it turns out, just taking out the best two days you know, uh, going backwards, let's say from 2020, and let's say you just went to 20, you know, 10, you know, you would have been up 52% from 2010 to today versus if you stayed in the whole time and didn't lose those best two days, instead of making 52%, you would have made 198% in the market over that same period of time. That's a real, I know it's like, oh, 6%, is that a lot? Yeah, 6% compounds pretty quickly against you. Uh, and, uh, it's one of those things. It's, it's, it's very, very difficult to make that back. Uh, yeah. And so that's the 10 year, the, the 20 year numbers, even kind of more ridiculous that if you, you know, as of 2020 of 2000 through the end of 2020, if you missed the best two days of the year, your returns would have been negative 38% by missing the best two days of the year over the last 20 years compared to if you stayed in, you'd be up 184%. So, uh, I mean, it really, I mean, that is a notable difference. Say that again, though, on the 20-year on the one. Say those numbers again, because I, I think you just said negative, right? I, I did. If you missed the best two days of the year for the last 20 years, you would have a negative 38% return compared to a positive 185%, 184% return if you stayed in the whole time and didn't miss out on those best two days. And of course, that does not include dividends, but it's it's fair to leave dividends out because 
Um, in one case, if you stay in the market, you would have gotten all the dividends. We're assuming you might have gotten all the dividends if you were out of the market, although theoretically, if you got out before X date, it gets a little too complicated. But that's yeah, actually if you if if you missed before Exxon sent its dividends out, right? <laughs> Something yeah. like that. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Well, yes, and you're right. It is a relative, uh, it's just price difference. Price difference on the S&P 500 as represented by the SPX, which is the uh, S&P 500 index. So yes. Yeah, that's completely fair because it's, it's a like-to-like. And so that that 20-year number was, was when you told, because you initially had, had sent that to me and I said, this, I don't, I don't think that's right. It doesn't seem like it could be right. And I and the, my first thing was, did you include dividends? And you said, no, no, it's like to like. It's not including dividends. And I said, it still doesn't sound. You got to show it to me. So you emailed me, you know, the data and just looking at it. And literally, it's like, you know, I mean, it's, I mean, you think about a year, there's what, 252 trading days in a year. And it means if you are only in for 250 out of 252 and the two days you were out, those happen to be the best days. Literally, you would have a negative performance over twenty years. It's 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 kind of shocking to me. It's 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 shocking, but, but and then I think as people think about it, the initial reaction is, yeah, but what? I'm going to miss the best two days. What's the chance that I actually miss the best two days? And uh, right, like, how would you only miss the best two days? Well, as it turns out, many times one of the best two days of the year are right after a big drop in the market. And so it's not uncommon when fear really strikes and, and, uh, and people get, you know, you have those big minute minus five, six, 7% days that people say, that's it, I'm out. I mean, that's what a, you know, a panic sell does. A lot of the times, the best day of the year is the day after that big sell-off. And so if you're making an emotional decision to drop out as the market's tanking and you go, well, this is just going to continue to go on, that which is a common decision, which is... Obviously, what happens, which is what pushes the market lower, that next day quite often is one of the best two days of the year, right? So don't let the the fear and the panic that's going on in the market, you know, cause you uh, to miss out on the strong rebound day because you need those rebound days over time, and they happen very frequently. I'll mention too, of course, that these are we take say the market. We assume that you would have been in the S and P five hundred or some replication of right. Um, and again, it's just uh, it's it's the returns without uh, without including dividends. And you know, I'll I'll say this to keep the uh, uh, you know the people who approve these things for us. You know, we're we're dealing in hypotheticals, right? Because as you say, we don't know when everybody's time frame would have been in the market. We also don't know you know what days you may have missed or might you know things like that. Um, Jay, I I think you actually ran the data back even further. Do I hazard to even ask you what it would be if you what year could you start at? And it's, it's kind of ridiculous. Like it's, uh, I mean, you know, like if you want, like we look back to 1950, we have daily data all the way back to 1950. And, uh, the, the return, uh, profile on that is, uh, you know, it's, it's, you would be essentially, you know, flat, like you've made, you would make nothing out of the last 70 years. If you missed the best two days of the year right. for 70 years compared to the, you know, uh, what, what did we say? It was like 38,000% or 3,800% that the market appreciated during that same time, right? So, uh, you know, it's the, the maybe maybe it's, you know, you're up one or two hundred percent, which is nothing compared to a 38, 4,800% kind of gain. So, and I, so I, I don't, I, I think that the data is almost ridiculous because nobody invests, you know, for 70 years in one position and never touch it, right? So that's that's a little unrealistic. I think for investors, a 10-year or 20-year horizon is much more realistic, and that's what the real numbers would tell you. Uh, but, uh, um, you know, 70 to me, Derek, is is now now we're really in the theoretical, right? I, I, I much prefer to, to talk about that. Yeah, no, I, I think I agree with that because I think for a couple of reasons. Number one is uh, how many times do we have someone who's, let's say, 10 years from retirement and really they've made their money. They've got a base of money. They've done their accumulation. They're in their, they're sort of, they want to accelerate the base through returns and, and, you know, reinvestments and things like that. But I agree. The idea that you would have had a hundred thousand dollars 70 years ago and not added to it, you know, that's a whole other thing. And we should mention that everything that we're giving is, you know, that assumes no, no withdrawals, no, no, uh, no additions. 
But I agree, Jay. I think it's, you know, it's, it's totally appropriate to look at someone saying, if you've got 10 years to retirement and you just, you know, you try and time the market, you try and go out of the market, all of a sudden, you know, eight, uh, would you say it was like, uh, 8% versus, I don't know if you said the, the, the theoretical numbers, right. But, um, you know, we, we know the rule of 72 that if you get a return, that's, you know, around 7.1, 7.2%, you get a double over 10 years. So essentially you're talking about, uh, a considerable appreciation in assets versus not too much, right? That's right. That's right. And and I'm glad you pointed out the theoretical and I'll, I'll add one last piece of this, right? We didn't actually run two portfolios so I could compare real returns here, right? This is just the math. And I told you how I did the calculation, but I think it was worth mentioning. We really, because guess what? I couldn't guess when the best two days of the year are. So there's no way to actually invest that way, right? To, to actually show you what real dollars would do. But yeah, good. Yeah. Let me, let me take the, the contra side of this. And, and unlike our uh, crypto episode that we did where I did take the other side and I, and I fully admitted that I have some, some skepticism on, on cryptos and uh, I'll leave that, you know, if you want to go back to the archives, that was a few, uh, few weeks ago, maybe, but let, let me take the other side of this. So, uh, typically people who, who look at this and I've seen, you know, financial advisors or institutions, I've, I've never seen the one or two days, I don't think, but I've seen them say, you know, if you miss the best 10 days of the year, this is what your returns you know, would drop to and things like that. But let me take the other side and say, Jay, sure, if you miss the two best days of the year, but what if you could just miss the two worst days of the year? Like, Wouldn't your returns be that much better if you were able to get out? And you know, let me take the other side, Jay. So what do you have to say about that? I, and, and usually, I would say that your returns would be even better if you could somehow miss the worst two days of the year, um, because usually the, the, you know, the down days are bigger than the up days, right? So if you miss the two best up days that compounds to 6% annually or averages 6% annually, yeah, you would avoid more than a 6% loss and you would outperform by probably six, 7%. But, you know, again, it's the pick the worst days, pick the best days kind of a thing. And that's, very difficult to do. When we ran those numbers that you just mentioned, it was about, it was closer to 7% you would outperform per year when you missed the worst two days of the year. And I'll, and I'll add this, um, <laughs> and maybe this is why you asked the question this way, which is, you know, wouldn't it be great if we could somehow, you know, lower the impact of those down days, right? I don't know when they're going to come, but wouldn't it be great if I knew a way of mitigating some of the risk against those big down days? Yeah, I think- Did I set you up too and, early on that one? <laughs> yeah, a little bit, a little bit. But I know I like the, I like the setup. I like the setup. Um, and it was a great setup. The, the one last point I'd, I'd like to make is, and maybe this is my own setup that I'm about to do is, look, the only way to make sure you get the best two days every year is to be in the market the whole year. The only way to miss the best two days of the year is to somehow know when those, uh, the two worst days, is to somehow know, you know, essentially have tomorrow's prices today, right? You would have to know when to exactly get out and exactly to get back in. Because I think the point you made earlier, Jay, was that, and I remember you putting this data in, in your book, uh, Buy and Hedge, uh, instead of, you know, and by the way, what a great Father's Day gift that would be. Um, so yeah, well, there's that. a broken pie chart. What a great book! You're right. My book too. Yes, yes. Well, why not buy them both? Buy them both for. Uh, they great should Father's be packaged. Day. We should package. I think them. so. I think so. I don't. I don't know why Amazon doesn't have them together. Anyway, my point is that yeah, that like you have to be so right. And the point you made earlier was that the cluster of you know the best days being around the worst days. Like, so does that mean you would have gotten out the day before one of the worst days? And at the end of the day, get back in so you could get the next day of the best day, if that was in fact the case. Like it's just it's kind of complex, right? Yeah, yeah. And and uh and those are those are one day rotations, right? Those aren't, you know, oh, let me miss, you know, weeks at a time. Those best days and worst days are usually clustered right next to each other, uh, as we were just talking about. So let, let me I I like your point that you're bringing up here, Derek, which is which do you think is easier? To somehow guess the worst days and be out on those or stay invested 
uh, all the time and be sure you capture the best two days, right? Which of those two sounds easier for you to do as a long-term investor? Sounds easier to me. Just stay in. Yeah. I don't have a bell on my, on my desk here, but if I did, I would ring it with the second one. It's just, yeah, it's easier to just be in. Of course, some people are fearful, Jay, which brings us to how you sort of manage this, right? Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's exactly right. I, um, uh, uh, well, you know, I, 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 as we're, as we're speaking right today, I think the S and P 500 hit an all time high, uh, or maybe it was just yesterday. It was very close, right? 4250, 4249 on the S P 500. And a lot of the questions we get here is, well, should I just wait? All right. And your Peter Lynch quote says, no. And when you ask me, and I believe when people ask you, the answer is no. The market spends quite a bit of time near all-time highs. You know, one of the—I'll give you one other data point, Derek, and then we could maybe flip into you know how you kind of bet against your your gut and uh, protect yourself against making the wrong call at market highs. One of the other data points that we've run is how well how often does the market stay near all-time highs? Right? If the market spent very very little time near all-time highs, yeah, then that's the you know the adage of buy low, sell high tells you I shouldn't buy high. Right. Because then, you know, sell low is coming around and nobody wants to do that. That's the wrong way to make money in the market. But what you may not know is that 36 percent of the time, Derek, the market is within three percent of an all time high. So more than one third of the days over the last, you know, actually in that data, I think, is uh, that also goes back uh, that, that, that period of time, that back to 1950, one over one third of the days, the market is within 3% of an all time high. So that obviously includes when it makes a new high, um, but even in the small pullbacks and it spends almost 50% of the time within 5% of an all time high. So it's not unusual for the market to hover around all time highs, you know, 5% within 5% that happens on a very regular basis. Right. So if you're looking for something unusual as your timing mechanism, it's certainly not waiting for an all time high right, to sit out. Right. That's the market spends a lot of time there. Derek, you want to add anything to that? Yeah, I think it's and, you know, you, you look at it and. If you if you said, well, the market made an all time high, so I'm going to I'm going to wait, but then wait for what? Right. And I, I think there's, you know, a lot of people waited after two, you know, 2008, 2009. And I think people sort of wait, um, but look, I mean, we we made an all time high, um, and it still surprises us. I mean, look, we we know what we went through February and March of 2020, and if you would have ta- if you would have said back then uh, or made a prediction that I think the market's going to 4,200 or 5,000, people would have said, "Yeah, good luck with that." But you know, even when it made a new high after the pandemic started, right? Uh, back to the highs in in January of of 2020 or February 2020. I mean, imagine you would have just said, "No, nah, I'm gonna, I'm going to sit it out here. I'm I'm going to wait." Um, you probably would have missed out on another, you know like 15 or 20 percent, and that that's only in the S and P. I mean, there there's a you know value sector. Uh, there's different sectors that you know made highs much more than that. So, yeah, I think I think that's the challenge and. You know, and that's where sort of the idea of of buying but hedging, to use the quote from your book, comes in. So, I think to me, it's it's uh, you know, if you're wrong, right, and the market doesn't go down, you miss out on a lot, Jay. So, I, I think I don't know if I added any value there. I was just I'm thinking out loud, as you know. Yeah, no, it's okay. Sometimes it's good. We just have a stream of consciousness on the discussion. And and I your point is, I think your point is like, hey, look, it's 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 there's so much here to consider if you're gonna try to be a market timer, don't use the all-time high as your thing that causes you to exit, right? We're not certainly condoning it. We think it's way too hard to do it. But you know, the simple of, oh, markets at an all-time high, let me take some money off the table and go to cash to protect. The there's more risk of missing out on the upside. Than the avoidance of the downside that you're going to get, or maybe you know, or even you know, getting a better entry. It's not only the avoidance of the downside; it's when to pull the trigger to get back in. You got to be right two times for that process to work, right? And uh, it's it's hard. And so, but maybe I'll roll into them. Then what do you do, right? Uh, Let's do that. Yeah, go ahead, Jay. Yeah, because you know, listen, some people's portfolios are at the highest they've ever been today, 
right? And they go, gosh, I've hit my goal. I know I still need growth over time, but I, you know, you're telling me not to time the market and get out, Jay and Derek, what, what am I supposed to do? And, and our answer is, is to hedge, right? Add in some protection, manage the downside risk, um, continue to have exposure to the upside. Um, but, but yeah, we, nobody wants to experience a minus 35% year in returns. That's, that's catastrophic for some people. If that was your first year of retirement and the market dropped 35%, there's a good chance you're going to have to go back to work because no, your plan probably didn't include you know, a 35% decline in your asset growth out of the gate. And so you know, protecting against that is so important. Um, it's why we run you know, our hedged equity strategies. And, and it gives you the ability to say, you know, I don't want to time the market. I don't know if the market's going to go higher or lower. Um, but I know that I need growth over the next 5, 10, 15, 20 years. And right now the market is probably the best way to get that with the exception of starting your own business um, is, to, is to participate in the equity appreciation. So what do you do? Well, you limit the downside and you enter into a strategy that's going to give you, you know, a healthy rate of return based on what your goals are. Uh, so it, it's one of those things that if you time the entry exactly wrong when you're hedged and you get into the market and the market sells off. Okay. So you were protected. Yep. That was bad timing. That's okay. By the way, that causes a whole bunch of other things to cascade like the hedger's opportunity and investing avoided losses, all those kinds of things. But if you're, you know, even if you hesitate and the market does go up, you're going to be rewarded for being invested. And, uh, you know, when you look at, uh, folks that have stayed invested over time, the market has, historically rewarded them. If you could, you know, wait it out, right? There have been periods of lost growth for decades at a time in the market, but if you're hedged, you know, the, the, the idea is that's not what you're going to experience. So be hedged, avoid the market timing discussion. And if you do get it exactly wrong, like if you put your money into the market on the day that it sells off, we had people, Derek, on February 22nd of 2020, that that was the day we put their money to work and then the market proceeded to sell off 35% in the next three weeks, they were hedged. They didn't experience that kind of a drop in the market. Yes, timing could have been better for them if you know they came in a little later. But, but who knew? Like Nobody saw that coming in the market, right? And so it's better. That same person could have invested just last week with us or last month, and they would, be, you know, they would have positive growth now. So yeah, sorry I went off there a little bit and I'll let you kind of pick it back up. But my, my, my point is if you're hedged, you don't have to worry about the market timing. You're going to get the growth. You're going to get the upside. And if you're exactly wrong, hey, that's okay. You're protected. I think it's interesting, you know, the things that you bring up there. And, and I love the fact you brought up, uh, you know, the example of, of getting in at the exact wrong time. And I, I think it goes back to is, you know, what is it that you're afraid of? I think it's an important point, you know, and I'll, I'll ask you to sort of go through uh, some of the specifics of, of sort of the buy and hedge methodology. But, you know, for most investors, they're not afraid of, you know, a pullback or, or a correction of, let's say, 10%. What they're afraid of is they're afraid of a 2008 type year, a 1929 type year, or, you know, some, some sort of uh, material downturn in the market, you know, 30, 40, 50% down. Um, but they're, they should, if they're afraid of an eight to 10% down move, then maybe equities, uh, maybe there's other strategies that are more appropriate. So, um, but I, I think that's a, that's a really good point that you made. Uh, and I, and I think that's, I mean, right. I mean, if someone is afraid of more than eight to 10% or, or, you know, it's, it, they're not afraid of a normal correction is what I'm trying to say, Jay. Right. Yep. I mean, that, that should be expected. As if you're going to be an equity investor and you get rewarded for having that kind of risk tolerance over time, but you're right. I mean that that those kinds of things, corrections like that happen, you know, one to two times a year, uh, uh, and, and it's it's not unusual. You have to be able to weather that kind of a storm. And again, long term, that's okay. It's why you know the the term buy and hedge is a play on on buy and hold, right? Everybody talks about buy and hold. And, you know, there's a lot of value in just staying long because markets return to all-time highs over time. Uh, so that is, if you have the time, that's, that's you know, an asset that you have in your back pocket that helps you, uh, uh, you know, weather the storm. But we think not just buying and holding, buying and hedging ends up being a smarter way to do it because you can then take advantage of dips because you've got a hedge 
And by the way, it'll let you sleep better at night because you don't have to worry, well, when is this sell-off going to be over and how long is the recovery going to take? Your impact you know, in, in practice and theory is that you end up losing less than when there is a major market sell-off. Jay, before I, uh, I lied before and said I was going to uh, have you go through some of the more specifics, but before we do that, um, every once in a while I see examples of, and sometimes it's people talking about an approach, and I'm like, oh, that's kind of what we do with buy and hedge retirement. And I listen to, uh, from time to time, there's a, a podcast called Value After Hours. It's a couple guys who are value investors. And I like listening to you know, we're volatility managers and options and we use synthetics and we, we hedge and we're, we're in equities. Um, we are not, you know, professional value investors. So I like to listen to uh, people who, who really are good in a particular space that I'm not. And it was, I was fascinated because they have this discussion on one of the last episodes I listened to. And it's the idea that for value investors, right, they want to buy things cheaper. And they were sort of looking around and saying, you know, a lot of stuff is very expensive. And one of the members of the panel said, you know, it, there's, a, there's a danger to remaining in cash. And it's, it's sort of the missed opportunity on the upside. And they brought up this, this point of, you know, what if you had, uh, you know, upside participation, a hedge on your cash by buying, you know, long-term calls on the market, Right. And it's the idea of, hey, if you're wrong, and by meaning wrong, that the market is is overvalued or too richly valued to go into to stocks. Remember, these are value investors. But if you're wrong, at least this, this upside capture will capture you know, a percentage of the money rather than just being in cash. And if you're wrong, you get nothing. And you know, I sort of said it loosely sort of describes a little bit of what we do in buying hedge retirement. So I don't know if you want to comment on that first. And, but then I, I want you to go into, you know, the methodology and, and why it works and, and then later the hedgers opportunity. Any comments on that first, Jay? Sure. Yeah, absolutely. That is definitely one of the uh, philosophies that we agree with that, you know, you, it can cost you more uh, to be in cash as the market is appreciating. Cash doesn't grow by itself, especially these days. Um, you're actually negative against inflation, which of you know, right now, a lot of the talk is that inflation is going to be on the rise. And so as your dollars buy you less and less, you're actually reducing your buying power right over time. And so without getting into that whole discussion, I would much rather just say, you know, a way to uh, protect yourself from protecting yourself. It's like the double negative, right? Like, hey, I'm my own worst enemy when I'm trying to do something good for myself, right? So in order to offset that, have some exposure to the market, use long calls, you know, the, the, the reason why those are a hedge against market drops, and most people don't think of a long call as a hedge, even people in the options industry don't always connect the dots. Once we explain it to them, they do. But the reason why we say, you know, a long call is a protected position is that the only thing you could lose when you buy a call is what you paid for the call. That's it. You know, if you spent $100 on a call and that call is worthless at the end, that's all you lost, right? And having that... But having the upside exposure of a long call, because a long call will continue to appreciate as its underlying asset significantly appreciates, you give yourself the upside exposure, but simultaneously limiting your downside risk. And it really is, you know, a great tool for investors who, you know, if they're hesitant about, you know, where markets are, if they're, they're, they're hesitant might not be the right word, or apprehensive about valuations or whatever the technicals may be that cause you to have some fear about investing, you know, using long calls instead of just buying straight up stock, I believe, and uh, I know you believe too, Derek, is definitely a protected way to create that exposure. Now, there, of course, are complications that come along with options, and there's this thing called time decay and some other pieces there that, uh, uh, you know, you then have to deal with. But if you had a, you know, a hundred thousand dollar account and all you did is invest, you know, eight thousand or nine thousand dollars in long calls, you've got, you know, 90 plus percent of your portfolio sitting there that you could then use to help yourself generate some offsetting uh, income. But maybe I'm jumping into the details of the way we run it uh, too soon. What, what I would just say about the podcast that you listen to, Derek, I think they're spot on that, you know, protect yourself from protecting yourself to your own detriment. And using long calls to create some upside exposure is it a way is a way to 
kind of offset your gut reaction or whatever the reason was why you decided to not be in the market, it's a good way to offset it. Jay, I'm glad we record these. Of course, it is a podcast uh, that we record, and I'll, so I'll be able to re-listen to this. I'm going to write down that quote because I think you just created a new quote, uh, protect yourself from protecting yourself. Uh, but let's let's transition to um, the idea of the methodology in buy and hedge. And I know, uh, you know, we mentioned you could buy a, a call option, but there's there's a lot of nuance. There's a lot of strategy and, and analysis that goes into that. Um, certainly, you can buy the wrong ones that will lose money really quickly. So, Jay, you sort of hinted at it in buy and hedge retirement. Uh, the methodology is a little bit of money we we put into uh, uh, something that, you know, doesn't sort of mirrors or captures a good percent of the upside, uh, but we don't actually own shares. So go ahead and, and get into the details now, Jay. Yeah, sure. And the theory is that, you know, as the uh, whatever, under, let's use the SPY, the S&P 500 uh, ETF, uh, the spider ETF for that. And uh, let's use that as kind of our basis. So if the SPY was going to go higher, uh, long calls give you the, the right to buy at whatever strike price the, the option is. Well, as that goes higher, the value of that option itself appreciates, right? So if you had the, the right to buy the market at 350 while it's trading at 430, well, that's got some real value, right? That's an 80 point difference between those two. So if you had bought, say, a 350 call last year, and you're still holding it, it's going to have at least $80 worth of value in it because the market's moved from $350 up to uh, $430. Now, what you might have paid for it, the market doesn't let you get that for free, right? The person on the other side of that is going to charge you some sort of uh, 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 premium for that. And that's the term that we use, premium. Uh, and so there's some extra cost associated with that. But uh, we'll talk about how to offset that in a minute. But the concept is, as the SPY goes higher, so will the value of my calls and they will appreciate. Now, for us, we use long-dated calls. We like calls that are one year, 18 months, even two years out, because it gives us a lot of time to let them, uh, to let the options appreciate and let the market appreciate uh, as it goes up. Now, if the market was to drop, okay, so I've got my position that, you know, I've got some upside exposure, but it's not going up in value, but that's okay. Neither would long, neither would long. Uh, stock. If the market really drops, all I lose is what I paid for those long calls. I mentioned a minute ago, we like to spend eight to 10% in the portfolio. That's how we limit our upside, sorry, our downside exposure during major market uh, sell-offs. So if the market really tanks, really sells off 15, 20, 30, 35%, which it does from time to time, you know, we're only going to risk eight to 10% in equity risk because that's all I paid for the calls. So that's the dynamic of the calls, right? We're buying calls that are long dated. Um, usually they're near the money, right? They're either slightly in the money. Again, it all depends on uh, uh, some other nuances around volatility and those things. And But but generally speaking, buying money, uh, buying options that are at the money are going to give you, uh, make it feel like you're invested in the market, but simultaneously limit your exposure. And then what we do with the rest of the portfolio is figure out a way to pay for that time value premium that I just paid the guy or gal on the other side of my trade. Typically on a, you know, on a, on a one year call that we'd buy, we've got maybe a seven, 6% time decay in it. Meaning if the market stayed flat, I would be down six or 7% because that time decay ticks off. Well, we look to make three to 4%, a safe three to 4%, the safest way we can. It's a little harder these days, Derek, than it was when we started the strategy with interest rates where they are today. But we look to make just 3 to 4% to offset half of that time decay that we're going to experience. And, you know, typically you could do things like investment grade bonds, or maybe it's high yield bonds with a hedge on them, or it's utilities, or it's preferred stock, or, you know, whatever the safest 3 to 4% that you can make. Heck, there are times, Derek, we used treasuries not so long ago, right? We, we used the five-year treasury in some of our portfolios because it was, you know, helping us offset a lot of the, the, the cost of hedging. And so, um, you know, whatever the safest way to offset that, we, we, you know, we're always scouring the market to find that. But then that pays me back half of my time decay. So essentially, if the market's flat, I lose my 6% on the long call, 6 or 7%, but I'm going to make 3 to 4% on this income portion. So I'm going to drag the market by 3%. And that's what we call the cost of hedging. 
But if the market appreciates and the market goes up, we're going to capture, you know, the majority of that move higher. If the market's up, you know, 20%, you know, in theory, and if we never manage the positions once we got in there, we're probably going to capture somewhere around 15, 16, 17% of that gain. But I never risked more than that 8 to 10% from a market decline, uh, from a, you know, market exposure perspective. So that's kind of the concept of how we build it and then kind of our expected returns I, I will tell you that um, you know the frequency of markets appreciating is one that we don't want to miss out on. Um, a lot of folks, you know, would tell us, "Wouldn't it just be safer to do a sixty forty portfolio?" Jay, that's what we've all been taught. That's what we all heard about. Um, what a lot of people don't realize is that the market is up fifteen percent in a single year, almost half the time. I think it's. I think it is actually right at fifty percent of the time the market is up fifteen percent or more. And we just think it's too expensive to miss out on that gain and that trend. And that's over the last, you know, 95, 96 years we studied. That's the average. That's not something re- recently. It's up even more, a greater percentage than that. But historically speaking, that's the number we want to capture. So, you know, we, we, we feel that we've got, you know, the wind at our back, generally speaking, when we have investments in the stock market and this long call construction allows us to capture a good chunk of it while simultaneously, you know, limiting our risk in case the market has a, a COVID or 9-11 type of an event. Yeah. And I think the other thing too, is that on the fixed income side, I mean, we, we, we view fixed income, i.e. bonds or bond-like investments more as a funding source, as you mentioned, for the, the long exposure. And we, we happen to most of the time, um, and the, you know, it's either hedged or we use extremely short duration uh, to try and limit the exposure to interest rate risk. And I will link to another podcast Jay and I did uh, talking about the 60-40 portfolio and the problems there. You know, this strategy is completely appropriate. I shouldn't say completely, right? So it depends on your circumstances and risk tolerance and time frame, right? Let me just uh, throw that out there. But, you know, I, th- I think it's a good comparison to a 60-40 portfolio, but without some of the pitfalls that, you know, we've outlined in the past. Um, so I think the other side of this too is if you have a floor in the portfolio and you've got a hedge, so, you know, the benefit is potentially getting, you know, capturing a good percentage of the upside, not all of it. You give back something for having the hedges, but at the same time, Jay, there is, uh, as you call it, the hedger's opportunity where if markets do materially sell off, there is opportunity to sort of reinvest the avoided losses, right? Into more shares, contracts, stuff at lower levels, correct? Yeah, absolutely. And and uh, the reason you do that is because you need to take advantage of the portfolio you've built that has actually, in essence, avoided the downdraft without you actually timing the market. Right? So I'll tie that point together. Um, you know, I'm I mentioned a few times that markets historically return to all-time highs. We're at an all-time high today. You know, the market's never, ever been higher. So if you wait long enough, that's going to happen. And I could quote history because I'm accurate as of today, right now, where the market is, right? So, but so why hedge if the market's always going to go back to, you know, all-time highs? Why try to, you know, experience this cost of hedging thing and now I'm actively managing and all those kinds of things? And the answer is because it gives you the opportunity to take advantage of your hedge. And as you aptly called it, and Derek, I think you might've actually named it the hedger's opportunity. Um, and it is, it is the perfect way to describe that it gives you the chance to reinvest the avoided losses. When the market is at a discount, you can buy it with dollars that didn't experience the discount. So what do I mean by that? So let's say you're fully invested and the market drops 25%, you know, now your value is 75% of what you had before. There's nothing you could really do there, right? You could decide to sell. We talked about that already. You probably missed the best rebound days if you do that. You could decide to sell down there. Um, you could hold your stocks or you have to put more money in if you want to buy the market at a discount. If you say, said to yourself, well, this market is oversold. You know, I think this is, this is ridiculous. I, it's time for me to put you know, to get into the market, you, you're already in, you're already invested, right? Where are you going to, what are you going to do? You got to come up with new money. But with uh, the hedged equity strategies that we're talking about, you have dry powder. 
right? I've only risked eight to 10% in my market exposure. I've got this income portion. You called it fixed income, Derek. I'm going to expand it to say a yield bearing portion, which was 90% of my assets. That was uh, arguably going to be less volatile and it's always hedged. Um, so you have this dry powder to buy while the market is lower without having to reach into your pocket to add to your exposure. And essentially what happens is because we count on the market eventually rebounding, you actually have more exposure, more shares, more contracts on the way up than you had on the way down. And it allows you to actually outperform the market going forward because you end up having more exposure in your portfolio. You will actually outgrow and outpace the market on the way up because you didn't experience all the drop on the way down. I tried to make that as simple as possible, Derek. Hopefully that came across. Anything you want to clarify? I would just say, you know, to me, buy and hedge retirement as a strategy, it really lets somebody who, you know, lets people just relax a little bit and avoid trying to listen to a lot of the pundits who go on CNBC or write articles. I mean, here's the thing. If you say the market's going to go down, you know, no one ever really goes back and says, hey, this person said the market was going to crash like 10 times in the last decade and it never did. Or, you know, you, you sort of get to claim it once if it happens and make a career out of it. Um, you know. And like, you, you, you're never going to be wrong. Like, it's the easiest thing to say. To, to go out to the world and be like, we feel that, you know, the market has a chance to sell off. So, you know, be cautious. And, and I, I think it's the wrong thing to say, but it's the easiest thing to say because eventually you're going to be right, right? It's the old, you know, even a broken clock is right twice a day thing where, yeah, but you, you could end up costing people quite a bit of upside capture um, if you're wrong time and time again. It's, it's, it's almost... Well, while the, while the odds tell you you're more right to say we expect markets to continue to press higher, very, very few people go on TV and talk about that, do they? Yeah. I mean, <laughs> no, they don't. I'll, I'll just give a little, uh, I know in our, our remaining time, uh, you know, it's a little bit limited. But, you know, when I first got into the business, people would talk about Elaine Garzarelli. Elaine was an analyst. I think it's uh, it Shearson Lehman or Lehman. I, I'd have to go back and look. But in 1987, I think shortly before there, she had put out a piece saying, you know, there could be something something brewing here. And she gets credit for calling the 1987 crash. And, you know, I think that that kind of propelled her career. So I think there's there's a perverse incentive sometimes for making these calls. And I'm not just, I'm, nothing to do with Elaine Garzarelli. But if you could make one of these calls and, and you're right, I mean, you keep throwing it out there. And if you happen to be right, again, I'm not talking about Elaine Garzarelli, then you write the book. You write the book about how I called. Um, and by the way, you or I, Jay, you know, back in on a technical basis, like we in 2007 to 2008, both of us saw head and shoulders patterns and some bearish things, you know, but we weren't going on CNBC and saying, hey, I'm calling a, a market crash. I just, Anyway, I, I just, uh, it's a little bit of a tangent, but I think the Wall Street Journal ran an article recently and they showed on a chart of the market going higher, all these people making, you know, market's going to crash 80%, market's going to crash, you know, 70%. And uh, yeah, I mean, to me, the, the methodology you've just gone through and we're talking about the whole buy and hedge, you know, methodology is, look, if... If you're okay with limiting your losses to somewhere, you know, around ten percent down, that's that's appropriate for you. Uh, maybe this is something to take a look at, right? It may not be appropriate for everybody. Let's say you make that call, right? Let's say you go, "Wow, I feel this is, you know, whatever the brewing thing is that you think you know that the rest of the market doesn't know yet, and you are, you know, you have conviction that the market is going to drop from here." What what's the downside of throwing on a th a hedge that costs you three percent for the next twelve months? Like, okay, if you're right, that's going to pay off, and you've got protection. Heck, buy a put, right? Just you know, you don't have to get complicated with the construction we just talked about. Buy a put, right? Or, or put yourself in like a synthetic short position where you're offsetting. You know, options are great; they have such uh, notional control with a small amount of dollars. You could put on a position and it'll only cost you three or 4% if you're wrong. 
Why wouldn't you do that and stay invested? Because if the rest of the market is right and you're wrong and the market goes up, it doesn't cost you very much. It only costs you 3% to be wrong. But if you sold your stocks, went to cash, and the market rips 10% higher in the next 12 months, 15% higher half the time, you've cost yourself so much more, right? That, that'll be very difficult to make up over time. So, you, you know, Derek, I like that example quite a bit about people that try to call tops and whatever the reason is that they, you know, want to add, there's extra fear and they, they want to reduce their exposure. It's very natural to reduce your exposure. We're big believers of it. We actually think the only thing you can control is the risk you take. Well, just have a hedge and don't, don't, you know, put yourself at risk of being wrong if the rest of the market is right and it continues to rip higher. Yeah, I remember one of the- I feel like I went the, off on uh, that a little bit. So no, I felt no, like no. I was almost pleading there. My apologies. <laughs> it just seems so obvious to me, right? This, yeah. Please help yourself from helping yourself. No, I like to protect yourself from protecting yourself. Protect yourself from protecting yourself. That's going to be on a t-shirt, Jay. Last thing I'll, I'll as we wrap up here- is uh, one of the advisors who, you know, of course, we advisors use our strategies. We, we, uh, you know, they hire us to, to to manage portfolios. But one of the advisors, I remember going to, uh, I think it was me, went to the, the presentation they did a, for their clients, and they had a, a great slide, which was a graph, and it had CNBC's ratings and the market. And CNBC's ratings are inversely correlated with the market, meaning the market is selling off. Their ratings are great. So this is my opinion only, but I think, you know, there's a lot of incentive to, for clickbait on articles and for, um, you know, for, for different networks to, to have fear out there. Fear gets them better ratings and their ratings are much better when the markets are going down than they're going up, right? Yeah. When everybody is singing your favorite Lego movie song, Derek, everything is awesome. Then, you know, who's, who's, watching, the mo- who's watching TV out of, uh, out of fear? Right, fear is a more powerful driver than complacency. Yeah, I I buy the rights to to put that in our podcast, uh, but I or or I don't I don't want to get sued by. If you sang it, I wonder would that be okay if you sang? You know, you, I know you like to sing it. Yeah, well, all right, we'll leave it there, Jay. Thanks again for coming on. I'll put some links into uh, previous episodes that we do, and uh, Jay, hopefully we have you back on the podcast very soon. Thanks, Derek. Thanks, Jay.